our position is something like a man in prison being asked whether or not he will accept a pardon. Now, the pardon to this man who is condemned to die is good news. It's gospel to him. You're not telling the man he's on trial. He's already been tried and condemned. He's just awaiting the execution that his crime deserves. But the gospel, the good news, is the pardon that is offered to him. The point is very clear. The people of this world have already been tried and found wanting, guilty. And the good news, the gospel, is that if we look upon the Lord Jesus, we'll be saved. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Understanding the Second Birth. So far, Pastor Carl has addressed the world's greatest truths in John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, and the world's greatest text, John 3, 16. Today, he will conclude his sermon as he preaches on the world's greatest test, found in John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. I remember listening to Phil Donahue years ago, had Jerry Falwell on there interviewing him. Falwell, man, he'd, he'd charge uh, hell with a squirt gun, and he did on that show. Everybody in the audience hated him, but he stood for what was right. Anyway, the preciousness of human life. And, of course, Donahue interrupts and says, Why is this a demonstration of the Father's love? How did God love us by sending His Son? If He really loved us, He would have died. Good point. Have you ever asked yourself how this is an expression of the Father's love? Listen, if Jesus were only a man as the cults teach. If he were only a man, as the liberal theologians and unbelievers think, then this would be no demonstration of the Father's love at all. In fact, it would have supplied only a lack of the fact that he loved us because he would not have personally been involved in the giving of his Son. It can only be a demonstration of the Father's love if the Lord Jesus is equal with the Father, if He's as much God as God the Father is, such that in the giving of the Son, God is giving of Himself. And of course, that's the argument of the Gospel of John. Jesus will say, believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He'll tell Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and the Son are inseparable. And so when God gave His Son, He gave of Himself. And of course, any gift, the degree of love is shown by the cost of the gift and also by the worthiness or unworthiness of the recipient. The more it costs and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater expression of love. God gave everything to you and I who deserve nothing. Nothing but that punishment that our sin deserves. And so the cross is the proof that God loves us. D.L. Moody was in England on one of his crusades when a young budding Englishman by the name of Henry Morehouse approached him D.L. Moody, if you don't know, he was the Billy Graham of his day in the late 1800s. And Morehouse asked Mr. Moody that if he ever came to America, could he preach in his pulpit? 
Well, thinking he'd never come, very few people made the journey across the ocean in those days by boat. It was dangerous, it was costly, it was long, it was sickening for many. He thought he'd never come. Sure. <laughs> Little did he know, Henry Morehouse knocks on his doorstep one day to take him up on his invitation. Of course, Moody thought, well, what can I do to this young preacher? I'll let him preach, and if he botches the text, I'll go up after him and preach after him. Well, Henry Morehouse got up there and he preached on John 3.16 with such power and passion that it touched Moody's heart and he invited him to preach the next night and the next night and the next night and the next night for over a week for 10 days. And he took John 3.16 and he broke it into 10 parts and he just emphasized the portion of the text. And by the way, that would be a good exercise for any of us to read this verse through thoughtfully putting emphasis on at least 10 places in the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he... For God so loved the world. Step through the whole verse. It will be a blessing to you as you reflect on its meaning. In either case, Henry Morehouse became known as the man who moved the man who moved millions. And in the final night of his series... He said, I've been trying to tell you night after night how much God loves you. But suppose I could borrow Jacob's ladder and ascend to heaven and walk on those streets of gold. And suppose I could find Gabriel, the herald angel, who stands in the very presence of God and ask him, tell me, Gabriel, how much does God love the world? He would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much God loves the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his monogene. Now, those words, only begotten, translating a single word in the original is a very important word. And again, repetition is the mother of teaching, so you need to know what it means, only begotten. What does it mean that he is the only begotten son? It means he's uniquely born. And in this case, the virgin-born son. Now, the term uh, appears in only one other place in all the Bible outside of the usage for Christ. And it's found in Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, we to are told, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was offering up his monogene, his only begotten son. Now, in what sense was Isaac the uniquely begotten son? Now, remember, Abraham had other children. He had Ishmael through Hagar. In fact, after Sarah died, he married Keturah and had six other kids. <laughs> God just totally revitalized this man's body. But when he was 100 and Sarah was 90, when their bodies were as good as dead, they had a baby. It was a miracle birth. And so Isaac becomes an illustration, the New Testament tells me, a type, a picture of Christ, not just in his birth, but in how potentially he could have died up there on Mount Moriah as a substitute. And so understand, the Lord Jesus is the monogene. He is the only begotten son. When he left heaven, he took on human flesh. He was never beget by Joseph's seeds. He was overshadowed, or Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. The only way to escape the consequences of the sinner's birth was by the virgin birth. And in order to be sinless, you had to be somehow uniquely born because we're all born in sin. And so the Lord Jesus came by a supernatural conception. Now understand, to be truly a substitute who could die, he had to be sinless. But if he were born of Joseph or any other man, he would be a sinner. So he is uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now understand, he came to die. That was his whole purpose. For this cause I have come into the world, he will say. He came to die in our place. It was part of the plan and purpose of God from eternity past before the foundation of the world, the revelation will say, in the mind and heart of God, he was crucified. Now, God the Father could not die because God is spirit and blood had to be shed because the wages of sin is death and the life is in the blood. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And no son of Adam could die because no son of Adam would qualify. So for God to become a man, he had to bypass Adam's an Adamic birth, and he came by a virgin birth. Please understand, he was not God the Son because he was virgin born. He was virgin born because he was and is God the Son. He came that he might not be infected by sin. He came to earth that you might go to heaven. He was born of a virgin that you might be born again. Now don't miss this. The blood that he shed there on Calvary was the blood of Almighty God. You say, God doesn't have blood, does he? He did when the Lord Jesus walked upon the earth. Do you remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Did you hear that? He told them to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This verse tells me that God purchased the church with his own blood. Now, do you know that when a mother carries a baby in her womb, that the blood type of the baby is not set by the mother, but by the father. The mother can have one blood type, and the baby can have an entirely different blood type. In fact, some paternity suits are settled by finding out whether a certain man could have sired a child by looking at the blood type that the baby has. Now, don't get the idea that the blood that circulates in the body of the baby in a mother's womb is the same blood of the mother's, because it is not. That's why a mother with AIDS can give birth to an AIDS-free baby if when the baby is delivered, the baby is in no way caught. Now, please understand that the blood that flowed through the veins of the Lord Jesus Christ was not the blood of the Virgin Mary. His humanity was sired by God the Holy Spirit. When he hung on that cross and he fell to the, and then fell to the ground, when it dripped to the ground, that rich, royal, red, ruby blood of Christ, it was not the blood of Mary, it was the blood of God. Sinless blood, innocent blood, sacred blood, holy blood, God's blood because of a virgin birth. And God is saying here, if you will look to him, you will live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what drove God to lifting his son up on a cross. It was his love for humanity. 
But understand too, he gives us the purpose in addition beyond the motivation. Notice that word that. You could translate it so that. That whoever believes in him, here's the reason, should not perish but have eternal life. Negatively, that you might not perish. The word perish does not mean to cease to exist, to be annihilated as the JWs say. God will blow that theory out of the water when we come to John 5. It speaks to eternal wrath in hell. God delivered his son over that you might not perish in hell forever, but positively have eternal life. And eternal life is a new quality of life as Jesus will teach us in John 17. I could preach on John 3.16 all day. But let me just say that God, the greatest person, so loved to the greatest degree, the world, the greatest object, that He gave His only begotten Son the greatest gift, that whoever believes the greatest invitation, uh, that whoever the greatest invitation believes the greatest decision, in Him the greatest object of faith, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but have the greatest promise, eternal life, the wonderful greatest blessing that God can give. It's the greatest truth in the greatest text. Now notice, beginning in verse 17, the greatest test. The world's greatest test. Now it's very important that we understand this, these verses that follow because the Lord wants Nicodemus and his Jewish friends to understand the consequences of living in unbelief. Look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Circle that word send. It's the Greek word apostello. We get our word apostle from it. We know an apostle is a sent one from God. Understand that when you and I, like Nicodemus, were born into this world, we didn't have any say in the matter. But the Lord Jesus was not only born into this world, He was sent into the world. Now, children that are here, I want you to pay close attention this morning. Boys and girls, understand that at Christmas, we are not celebrating that Jesus' life began in that Bethlehem stable. He didn't come into existence when he was placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is God. There was never a time when Jesus was not. There was a time, however, when he did not have a human body. And that's what we are celebrating at Christmas. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, Isaiah the prophet can say, a child will be born to us. Wonderful. What's the child's name? Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I know a lot of cults say that, I, that God can't become a man, but this verse puts, com, he combines a deity and humanity, humanity inseparably into one person. A baby is going to be born, and the baby's name is called Mighty God. Undiminished deity, perfect, sinless humanity, inseparably combined into one person, Jesus Christ our Lord. For God, he says, did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The whole reason he came to earth was not to bring a message of condemnation, but a message of salvation. Now, this word judge, crino, it carries the idea of condemnation. And of course, he came into the world and didn't have to condemn the world because he didn't come into a neutral world. He came into a world that was already guilty, already lost, already condemned. 
That's why in Adam, we are already condemned as sinners. Written across our foreheads is condemned already. As Paul will say in Ephesians 2, by nature, by birth, we are children of wrath. So he didn't come to bring bad news. The bad news had already been given. He came to bring good news that through him we might have life. And so verse 18 can plainly say, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And so with the world in need of a Savior, the Lord came on a saving mission. And all of us this morning are in one of two groups. We're either among those who are not judged, not condemned, because our sin has been condemned and judged in a substitute upon whom we have believed, or we're among those who are already judged, already condemned, and we are only compounding our guilt by continuing in unbelief. And so verse 36, when we come to the end of this chapter, we'll say, the wrath of God abides right now on such unbelieving people. And so our only hope is to flee to the cross. Our position is something like a man in prison being asked whether or not he will accept a pardon. Now the pardon to this man who is condemned to die is good news. It's gospel to him. You're not telling the man he's on trial. He's already been tried and condemned. He's just awaiting the execution that his crime deserves. But the gospel, the good news, is the pardon that is offered to him. The point is very clear. The people of this world have already been tried and found wanting, guilty. And the good news, the gospel, is that if we look upon the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. A man who has a disease and needs just a few injections to cure the disease can refuse those injections and suffer the consequences and die of the disease. And if he does, he has no one to blame but himself. Why? Because he spurned the remedy. And so what he experiences is the consequences of his choice. If you die and go to hell, it won't be God's fault. Because the God who set the penalty paid the penalty through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so God says here, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, he stands condemned. He does not look with favor upon your unbelief. It's not some small thing for you to persist in unbelief. No, the, the arrogant critic of a masterpiece, the one who mocks a, a great work of art, it's not the masterpiece that's condemned, it's the critic. And you can laugh and you can mock the gospel that I preach. God is not mocked. You are. No man, he says, in John 1.18... Well, let me read John 1.19 first. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Now, what's light for? It's to reveal. It's to shed some information on something that you could not otherwise see. The light, the Lord Jesus, has come into the world. Now, we read in chapter 1, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him. God put a face upon himself when he became a man. So he says, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. 
This is the judgment. This is the supreme condemnation. And the reason the people of John's day that he's addressing and the people of our day are condemned because they choose darkness over light. Now, what's light for? Again, it's to reveal. But some people choose darkness. They shut themselves up in darkness. And the reason they hate the light is because of what it reveals. Because it reveals not only where we are, it reveals what we are. Now, sometimes we have heard in a very simplistic way, people say, well, agape love is God's love. You ever heard that? Raise your hand. Agape love is God's love. Well, it's not true. It's not exclusively God's love. This verb, agapao, for God so loved the world, is the same verb that's used here when it says men, agapao, loved the darkness. It's willful love. It is a choice that they make. They love the darkness. They willfully choose darkness over God. They value their pride over their integrity. They value their proclivity for sin over faith in God. For everyone who says, who does evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Some people camp in the darkness. Because when they come to the light, it shows their sin. Their sin that brings great displeasure and condemnation from God. Please understand, it's not intellectual problems that keep people from trusting Christ. People say, well, I've got to study all the apologetics first before I become a Christian, and God can hold me accountable. Not true. Even as I preach, because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, in your heart of hearts, you know it is true. That's why if an atheist will let me preach to him, I'll preach to him. And share with him, if for no other reason, I'll tell him, if for no other reason, it's just so you are informed what the Bible says, let me explain to you the way of salvation. Because as I preach, the Spirit of God takes the word and it's ringing and reverberating in his heart. It's true. Now, people will tell you they're atheists or agnostics or a member of some cult because they cannot accept the truths of the Bible. But I want to tell you, they have made a choice to live in darkness. And so verse 21 says, But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now there's a contrast here. Did you pick it up between verses 20 and 21? First is the person who loves darkness. The Bible says he practices evil. He loves darkness. Why? Because his deeds are evil. Whereas the person who has been born again, the Bible says, practices the truth. Now, as I will share that this morning, some people will watch me on television and they'll think, oh, he's not talking about me. I'm not immoral. I'm a decent person. I don't practice evil. But neither are they practicing truth. Some people today will not be in church, not because they can't be, but because they won't be. They say it's no big deal. Oh, it's the Ten Commandments. No big deal. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the new covenant Sabbath is the Lord's day, the first day of the week. They don't practice truth. And by default, they are practicing evil. But second and more critical is the contrast. He says the light come. uh, He says they do not come to the light. Or they come. He comes to the light, the believing person that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What's he saying? 
See, I'm in church today not because I'm some super sanctimonious, pious Christian. I'm in church today because of what has been wrought into my heart. I had a birth from above. And God put a new earnest desire on the inside so that I want people to see that I have a new life and a new love for God. You're not saved by deeds. John is not contradicting all that he has said. You are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. When you are saved, your life changes. And if your life hasn't changed, you've never been saved. And you know what is so scary to me as a pastor? Are people who know the plan of salvation, but they don't know the man of salvation. They don't have an earnest desire to serve God. Some won't even take the first step and publicly confess their faith. The first evidence of a new birth. God is giving us hope this morning. Now, a Savior is not needed for people who don't see themselves as sinful. But if you see yourself like God sees you this morning, condemned under his wrath, the best news you of this world will ever hear is look and live by coming to the Lord Jesus. Our Father, help us who know you to let these words reverberate deep in our soul that we might know them and practice them that we might be able to hold out to people all around us, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. Help us to hold out to the lost people of this world the good news that someone held out to us. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who may know the plan of salvation, but they don't show a new life wrought in you, a birth from above. And you said many on that day, would claim to have this birth, but you will say unto them, I never knew you, depart from me. I pray today, Father, for someone who is uncertain in their heart where they stand with you. I thank you for your magnificent grace that the Lord Jesus didn't die for some of our sin, but all of them, that you lifted him up on that cross and he became a lightning rod of judgment that in our stead he might experience what we deserve. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your magnificent love. Father, thank you for your love. And thank you, Spirit of God, for opening our eyes to the whole thing. If you're here today and you are not saved, today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. If you will take God in faith, faith is believing his word. And the Bible says God can't lie. If you will come in faith and say, Lord Jesus, save me, God will save you today. Would you say that? Whosoever will may come. It doesn't matter what you've been like, how dirty, filthy, rotten your life may have been. We all fall short of the glory of God. Whosoever will may come. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Father, help someone today to do that. For his name's sake, we ask it. Amen. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 008. Our calling at Search the Scriptures is to lead believers into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to grow believers in that relationship. If you can help support this mission with a one-time or regular gift, please click the Give button in either the Search the Scriptures app or visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.